0: Good morning, Pillar family and friends. I'd like to begin by sharing five pictures with you this morning. Each picture is of a person in mourning, not the morning time, but in mourning, expressing grief and uh, deep sorrow. So as you see these pictures, I'd like to ask you this question. How would you describe the following people in a single word? Here you go. So what word came to mind for you? Maybe sad, sorrowful, disheartened, hopeless, uh, pitiful, unfortunate. Do you know that Jesus uses one word to describe those who mourn? Do you know what it is? Blessed. Jesus calls them blessed. We hear that. We hear the word blessed in relationship to people who are mourning, and we think, now that doesn't make any sense to us at all. Through our cultural lens, to be in mourning or to be sorrowing or grieving is the exact opposite of blessed, cursed perhaps, but not blessed. Mourning and sorrowing and grieving are uncomfortable places for us. Culturally, we value forgetting our troubles and numbing our pain. That's why we sing songs like, it's five o'clock somewhere, right? We're encouraged to turn our backs on grief and sorrow and do everything that we can to not face those things which might cause us to mourn. We tend to take a light-hearted attitude toward the serious issues of life. We like to be distracted. Uh, we like noise. We tend to stay away from silence and stillness lest we find ourselves alone with weighty thoughts and feelings. Our best friend our phone, which is always so close to us, keeps us safe and protects us from those awkward moments of silence and stillness with our souls. We're hard at work to be entertained, so we don't have to do the hard work of entertaining reasons for grief, sorrow, or mourning. And if distractions are insufficient and entertainment falls short, we numb the pain We even have a rather morbid phrase for this numbing. Uh, We say this, we drown our sorrows as if we can kill them forever. But they don't don't stay drowned for long, do they? And so for some, when we can't escape or numb or suppress, we self-harm as a means of exerting control um, over our pain. But Jesus rescues us from all of these rebel tendencies, all of them. And Jesus says to us, in my kingdom, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who embrace mourning and spend time with it and run to Jesus in the morning. Blessed are those. Now last week we started a new series, Counterculture Kingdom, How the Gospel Changes Everything. Our culture says, blessed are those who never mourn and don't need comforting. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Our culture says, don't walk through any valleys or any sad seasons, only do what makes you happy now. But Jesus says, the valley of tears is your daily path to the summit of joy. The valley of tears is your daily path to the summit of joy. Our series, Counterculture Kingdom, is rooted in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew's gospel, we learn that Jesus is king. Jesus is our rightful king. He created me and he gave me life. He created you and he gave you life. He is my rightful king and your rightful king. Anytime I try to claim autonomy or kingship, if you will, over my own life, that's an act of rebellion against the God who created me. He's the rightful king. I am not and you are not. Jesus is our promised rescuing king. He was sent to us. He came to us with the intention of rescuing and showing mercy, not judgment. Jesus is the only perfectly just king. There has never been another perfectly just king in all of human history, and there never will be apart from Jesus himself. And at his advent, when Jesus came, he inaugurated his kingdom here on earth. It was a good and perfectly just kingdom. And some, some of you are like, he did? Jesus established a kingdom? Well, where, where is it? This kingdom doesn't have any flags. I haven't seen any flags. Uh, no uniforms. I know the Awana uniform does not count. Sorry, guys. Uh, No borders? Like, Where is this kingdom that you talk about? What we see is kingdom expressed globally in the life or through the life of every church that gathers. God's people gather together as a family. We know them as churches. They serve as kingdom outposts until He returns. They make the invisible kingdom visible in our broken world. They point to Jesus, the true and better King, and they point to a true and better kingdom, a perfectly just and righteous kingdom. That's our role as a church here in Okinawa. It's a counterculture kingdom. Nothing like our broken and rebellious kingdoms that we we live in uh, here on earth. Jesus' kingdom is not an upgrade to them. It's entirely different because the gospel changes everything. And in Matthew 5, we encounter Jesus' inaugural address as king. In this inaugural address, we begin to get a sense of just how countercultural Jesus' kingdom really is. How the gospel changes everything. In Matthew 5, we encounter the Beatitudes. These are the primary values of Jesus' kingdom. Last week, we talked about the first primary value. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus doesn't say blessed are those who are self-made or self-sufficient. He doesn't say blessed are the strong and the self-satisfied or the self-made people. No, Jesus says blessed are those who need. Blessed are those who see their need and who satisfy that need in Jesus alone. This week, we'll see the second primary value in verse 4. It goes like this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, in Jesus' countercultural kingdom, the valley of tears is our daily path to the summit of joy. So let's unpack what this means for us through three questions. The first question is kind of a review. I'll keep it brief. It goes like this, what does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are those? The second question is, what is Jesus teaching that we should be mourning over? And the third question is, what if what if mourning is not a regular part of my day-to-day life? So let's start with the first question. Uh, keeping in mind that our big idea throughout is this, the valley of tears is my daily path to the summit of joy. So here's our review question. What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are those? Well, we looked at this last week. It means happy. Yes, it means fortunate. Yes, but not just happy and not just fortunate. More than those two words. More than that. To be blessed means to be approved or to find approval. Remember, we looked at D.A. Carson's quote last week and he said this, when man blesses God, he is approving or praising God. And when God blesses man, he is approving man. So to be blessed is to be right with God through Jesus, and to have that spoken over you by your Father, by your Creator. Sometimes we read those words, remember when Jesus was baptized and the Father spoke over him, you are my beloved or deeply loved son, and in you I am well pleased, and we think that's just for Jesus, but the Father speaks those words over us, over every kingdom citizen uh, when we are baptized into the family as well by faith. He looks um, at us through Christ and he says, you also are my beloved son, you are my deeply loved daughter, and in you I am well pleased because of Jesus' work on our behalf. So entrance into Jesus' kingdom does not come through our performance. Jesus is not teaching in the Beatitudes that this is our way into the kingdom or, to, or the way to stay in the kingdom. These are his kingdom values. And these values will be increasingly true of the character of those rebels who have repented of rebellion and been rescued by Jesus into his kingdom. Well, Why? They'll be increasingly true of our character because when Jesus rescues us and makes us at home in his kingdom, he rips out our rebel heart, what the Bible calls a heart of stone, and he gives us a heart of flesh, a new heart. So rebel John had zero desire or capacity, capability to live by Jesus' kingdom values. I didn't want to do it. So Rescued rebel John, on the other hand, has increasing, albeit imperfect, but increasing desire to live by Jesus' kingdom values, my new heart. So Jesus says we are blessed because our faith in his work on our behalf has made us right with the Father. And so the Father speaks approval over us because of Jesus, not because of ourselves. We're in Christ, right? And so now we're forever citizens in Jesus' forever kingdom by faith in Jesus' work on our behalf. No more fear of judgment. Jesus will not return as our judge. He will return as our rightful king now. And we're not talking about stuff in the blessing. We're not, we're not, we're not blessed with stuff. That's not the blessing. That That would be an empty and hollow blessing. That's, that's a cultural value. This is a countercultural kingdom. So the blessing we're talking about is relationship with our Father, with our Creator, with our rightful King Jesus. We're talking about citizenship in His forever kingdom. We're talking about a new heart. Living like we were created to live. And there's more to the blessing here in the second half of this verse. It says, those who mourn will be comforted. Jesus promises comfort. He gives us his spirit, who is our comforter. And he tells us, when we mourn over those things for which we should mourn, we will know his comfort. This is an aspect of his blessing. And the comfort of our hearts, um, or the, I'm sorry, the comfort that our, our hearts need will be found in Jesus alone, which is exactly what we are created for. We are rescued then from illusions of comfort. We are rescued from empty promises of comfort. We are rescued from a lifetime of playing hide and seek with comfort because we find comfort in Jesus alone as citizens of his kingdom. So what does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are those who mourn? Well, we've seen two things. Blessed because it's a sign of your citizenship in his kingdom. It's a sign of your new heart. It's a sign of your right relationship with the Father. He means that, but he also means you're blessed because you will be comforted by him when you are rightfully mourning over those things to which we should be mournful or for which we should be mournful. So that brings us to question number two. What is Jesus teaching that we should be mourning over? Well, we can learn a good lesson about reading, understanding, and applying the Bible right here in this passage. This verse doesn't provide us with the object of our mourning, right? We read it. We saw it. It doesn't say, blessed are those who mourn over and then fill in the blank for us. It doesn't do that. Jesus just says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. So we're not sure what the mourning is about. So what are we to do in situations like this? Well, When Scripture seems to be unclear or leave unanswered questions, we look to other Scripture for clarity. We allow passages that are clear and most clear to shape our understanding of those passages which seem a little fuzzy to us. We don't go the other way. We don't have the fuzzy passages or the unclear passages inform the clear ones. We go the other way. Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture. And when we do some work in the Bible on the subject of mourning, we see two very clear themes emerge. Jesus calls us to mourn over our sin and Jesus calls us to mourn over suffering. So primarily sin and secondarily uh, suffering. Not that uh, mourning over suffering is secondarily important to Jesus. It's just that uh, I think in scripture, you see mourning over sin gain uh, the greater attention as a theme from start to finish. So Jesus calls us to mourn over sin and he calls us to mourn over suffering let's begin with mourning over sin. We see an example in the short book of Joel. This is Joel chapter 2 verses 12 and 13. Joel is one prophet of many, sent by God to call his wandering rebel kids back home. Because even after we're rescued and we're given a new heart and adopted into the kingdom, we we still have remaining, rescue, uh, remaining rebel tendencies and we wander from our father. So, um, The father sends Joel to call his people back. And now listen to what God says through Joel. He says this, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts, tear your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. So, mourning over sin. Mourning is what we do when we grasp the seriousness of our rebel ways against a holy God. Mourning authenticates our words. I mean, we all know the difference between an emotionless apology when somebody just says the words, I'm sorry, but those words are devoid of emotion. We know the difference between that and an emotion or pa- an emotion filled apology or an a passionate a passionate apology, right? Like we want to hear and see some emotion. We want to hear and see some passionate. It, it authenticates our words. Mourning or sorrow and grief says what our words can't say for us. That's what God means when he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. It was custom then in mourning or in repenting to uh, rip your clothes apart and pull at your hair and to cover yourself with dirt and with ash. And God basically says to them, I'm really not interested in your religious motions. In fact, what I'm saying is your sincere emotion is greater than your religious motions. So save the motions. I want to see and hear authentic expression from your heart. And that authentic expression when we grasp the weight of our rebellion, our sin against God, is mourning. So mourning is a part of our true returning. As we come home, we express sorrow. And we see that in at least three different occasions or three different ways as it relates to sin in Scripture. Here's the first one. Mourning over what is wrong with me, with me personally, So this is, in fact, this is meant to be mostly personal, this mourning over sin. Mostly throughout Scripture, we see the emphasis placed on mourning over what is wrong with me, right? Really owning what's wrong with me. We see this in Psalm 51. We see David owning and mourning and confessing his sexual sin. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Did you hear and see the words? Have mercy on me, my transgressions. Wash me, my iniquity. Cleanse me, my sin, my transgression, my sin, I sinned. Man, you feel the weight of that personal confession. Guys, we can't mourn what we don't own out loud to the Father. And this is what it sounds like right here, to own, mourn, and confess our daily rebel tendencies. Guys, every one of our rebel thoughts, words, and action is an act of rebellion against our holy and just King. Every one of them. When we sin, not only are we rebelling against Him, We are, these sins are the very reason for which Jesus went to the cross and suffered on our behalf and in our place. This is a weighty, weighty thing. Rebellion is not a light thing to be taken lightly. Family, this should be our daily practice. We should create space to mourn and confess every rebel act at the end of every day throughout the day because the valley of tears is our daily path to the summit of joy. But it's not just personal sin that we need to confess and mourn. It's also mourning over what is wrong around me. We see this in Psalm 119, 136. David actually says this. He says, My eyes shed streams of tears, streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. So again, why is David mourning? He's mourning because he sees rebellion against his holy God, his holy king, just like um, his own personal rebellion was against a holy God. He sees that going on around him. Um, He sees in all the brokenness around him, all the rebellion, more reasons why Christ um, uh, would suffer, right? We see that as followers of Jesus. All the brokenness around us isn't just brokenness. It's broken because of rebellious acts against our king. He went to the cross for these things. And I think David is suffering here. We see this theme all through scripture. or are not suffering, mourning, because he knows that every rebel act creates untold Suffering in the lives of other image bearers. Guys, every click of porn, every theft, every hurtful word, every rebel act, every selfish attitude, every defensive posture, every aggressive move is a rebel act against a holy king. And it sows seeds of damage in the lives of other image bearers around us. Do we shed streams of tears over our own rebel acts? Do we shed streams of tears over the rebel acts around us? Guys, in this season, I have seen increasingly that we, uh, we as a church and just Christians collectively uh, have, a, have a bit of a problem here. We have what I think would, we could call selective tears. Some of us will shed tears over abortion, for example. Some of us for human trafficking, some of you for abuse, uh, some of you f- um, over any other kind of profound injustice, fill in the blank but i th- I think here 's where we fall short a little bit when we begin to start talking about racial injustice. the tears dry up, and the sorrow disappears, and so I was left asking myself this question: why do we struggle to shed tears over the devastating impact? 100 or hundreds of years of slavery, constitutional inequality, segregation, and Jim Crow policy has had on our African American brothers and sisters and their children, inflicting generational pain. Some of these uh, men and women are brothers and sisters of ours who are members of our own church family. Why do we struggle to shed tears over this? Some of us are more concerned that this is the third week in a row that, that I, Pastor John, has, have used the term racial injustice in a sermon. We're more concerned about that than we are concerned for those in our family who have actually suffered generational pain through racial injustice. We spend lots of time discussing words like cultural Marxism, racial Gnosticism, and the exact meaning of social justice. Can we trust it? Can we use it? Is it ours? Is it somebody else's? What does it mean? Rather than actually stopping to express sorrow over the profound injustices around us. Injustices that affect members of our own family. Now listen, those are important conversations to have. We should care about words and their meaning and Uh, and fidelity to the doctrines of Scripture and gospel primacy and the supremacy of Christ. We should talk about all of these things and care. The problem, I think, is we get very distracted by some of these conversations to the point that we are not actually mourning for the generational pain experienced by actual flesh and blood members of our own family. And I just want you to know I'm not saying this at you. I know this is true because for so many years that was me, it was me and why didn't why didn 't streams of tears flow from my eyes? Why do they flow so slowly from our eyes now, if at all? Jesus also calls us to mourn over shared wrongs, right so we saw personal wrongs, sin in me, we saw the wrongs around us, sin in our culture our our community um, But Jesus also calls us to mourn over shared wrongs in us collectively that we share. We see this in Daniel chapter 9, but this makes many of us really uncomfortable, the fact that we might have to confess a shared wrong. It shouldn't, though. It's biblical. In fact, in Daniel 9, we listen to Daniel pray a prayer of confession on behalf of his entire people group, his nation. It goes something like this. I won't read the whole thing, but this is an excerpt from Daniel 9. He says, We have sinned. He's speaking on behalf of the whole nation. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name. Guys, we are so uncomfortable with the idea of confessing shared wrongs. We're so uncomfortable with the idea of owning shared wrongs or even discussing them. Forget confessing them for a minute. And look, this is the elephant in the room. This is a major topic of conversation in our culture right now in regards to systemic racism. An idea which some reject outright. Like we reject the idea of systemic racism and so we can't even have the conversation of is there any shared guilt? Is there something to own, to mourn, to confess? Why do we struggle with that? If our primary allegiance is in Jesus' kingdom and we're freed from the obligation of having to defend the moral superiority or the rightness of the broken kingdoms we live in in this world, why why do we struggle with those kinds of conversations? If in Jesus' kingdom he calls us to be a humble people who listen and mourn any and all injustices and to seek justice and to confess corporately, why are we so guarded against this? Shouldn't citizens of the true and better kingdom be out front as lead confessors, if you will, with a prophetic voice like the prophets of old? I mean, we see this in the New Testament. Letters were written to entire church families, calling them to repent together for something specific. So family, let let me just ask this question for consideration. Why does our guard go up so quickly in this area? I think we need to consider this deeply. Jesus also calls us to mourn not just over sin, but over suffering. To mourn over our own suffering, we see this all through Job, and to mourn over the sufferings of others. In Romans twelve fifteen, Jesus says uh, to us through Paul, weep with those who weep. So in all of the debate around terms like social justice and racial injustice and systemic racism, family, do we have the eyes to see those who are weeping around us? Do we have ears to hear or have we been so distracted by our conversations and our social media posts that we don't have time or make the effort to enter into the lives of real people? We have family members in our family here who are sorrowing, grieving, mourning. Are we mourning together as one family? As a family, the valley of tears is our daily pathway to the summit of joy. All right, back to Psalm 51 for our wrap-up. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, without the sorrow, there is no real joy. Without sorrow, there is no real joy. And so what we see in Psalm 51 is David mourning, expressing sorrow, confessing, and praying, looking for that joy from his rescuing king. He prays this, verse 9, Psalm 51, Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from Your presence and take not Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Thomas Watson has said this. He wrote this years ago. He said, if you lost a friend, all your weeping will not fetch him again. But if you have lost God's presence, your mourning will bring your God again. That's what we see David doing. He's owning, he's confessing, he's mourning, and he's running to the only place he can find his joy restored, to his rescuing king. Because David knows that the valley of tears is his daily pathway to the summit of true joy. We see this repeated in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what the next verse goes on to say? It says, "If if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Family, do you know what we say when we don't mourn? The absence of mourning over our sin, the absence of mourning over the sin around us, the absence of mourning over shared collective sin of a church, community, or culture is us saying without words, That we don't have any sin to confess, we don't have any sin to mourn. So here's a question: What if mourning is not a regular part of my day to day life? Our final question: What if mourning is not a regular part of my day to day life? Well, the first the first answer to that is: It's quite likely that I am still a rebel. I don't have a new heart, right? There's no mourning going on. None. There's no sensitivity to it. not mourning. I'm not grasping the weight of my rebellion against God. I may very well still be a rebel who hasn't repented. Paul gives us a warning in Romans. He says, Listen, if this is you, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. A hard and impenitent heart does not mourn over personal sin. Guys, if this is you, I implore you to repent of your rebellion. Implore Jesus to give you a new heart that is inclined to mourn over the weight of that sin. This is one of my remaining rebel tendencies. So it may be that you're still a rebel. It may just be you don't mourn because this is one of your remaining rebel tendencies. Luther said mourning is a rare herb, like it's hardly found in the life of the church, which is crazy considering it's Jesus' second primary value. Our personal confession from last week, we saw Martin Lloyd-Jones say this. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, these beatitudes crush me to the ground. Well, this one crushes me to the ground because I've realized this week, I don't mourn well and I don't mourn my personal sin often. How about you? If it's true for you, the remedy for you is the same for me. We've got to go back to Jesus' first primary value. Acknowledge that we are poor in spirit in this way. And Jesus, I need help. Cultivate in me a heart that feels the weight of my rebel tendencies against you. Cultivate in me a heart that daily mourns the weight of this rebellion and runs to you for joy. Cultivate me a heart that walks through the valley of tears so that it can find joy um, in that summit with you. Guys, there are many murmurers, but few mourners. Many murmurers, but few mourners. Let's not go on murmuring any longer. Let's rehearse the gospel. Let's be mourners, not hopeless mourners, hopeful mourners as we rehearse the gospel and meet Jesus' mercy. Here are the pictures again. Look at the pictures as I finish, please. And ask yourself these questions. Has this been my posture at any point this week? Have I mourned over what is wrong in me? Have I mourned over what is wrong around me? Am I mourning over the sufferings of others around me? Family, the valley of tears is my daily path to the summit of joy. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, they will be comforted. Let's not go on murmuring. Let's rehearse the gospel. Let's mourn. Let's press through the valley of tears daily together and find joy on the summit with Christ as a family. I love you, family.